You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. I want to welcome all of our listeners to this episode of The Zeitgeist. I'm Jeff Rafke. And today I am joined by, and we're going to go through our guests, uh, Deanna, tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for doing this and having us on. My name is Deanna Trost. I'm a communication strategist by trade. I live here in Washington, D.C., but I grew up in Orchard Park, a suburb of Buffalo. My areas of expertise professionally are uh, helping organizations build more inclusive cultures, so the DEI space, as well as fighting the, the disinformation epidemic that communities are experiencing globally. Okay. And Mohammed. Thank you very much for having us here. I'm Mohamed Kanja, 25 years old, uh, from Berlin, son of Lebanese immigrants, and I work as a PR consultant focusing on political communication and supporting stakeholders from the public sector. And I'm very much into day-to-day -day political business and have a degree in international relations and looking forward to talking to you. Okay, and I'm always uh, glad when I'm accompanied by my, uh, my team who can keep me on the straight and narrow. Liz. Thanks, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, my name is Liz Hoteri, and I am the program officer at AICGS for foreign and security policy and society, culture, and politics. Um, and together with our colleague, Susanna Deeper, I worked on this project of social divisions and questions of identity in Germany and the United States. And for our um, second year of this three-year project, we went with Deanna and Mohammed and their cohort to Dortmund, Germany, and to Buffalo, New York. Well, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, those of you who listened to episode 58 of the Zeitgeist will have heard uh, something about the uh, visit to Dortmund. We've got a, a really great group of um, younger people uh, in this uh, program on social divisions in Germany and the United States. And uh, so, as uh, Liz mentioned, they've, they've just uh, completed a, um, a field uh, research trip to Buffalo. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, a bit today. Um, Buffalo is a place that many people have heard of for tragic reasons after the mass shooting that uh, took place uh, at the Topps super, supermarket there uh, just recently. And, and I think this has refocused American attention, uh, not just on that specific community, uh, but on some of the, the deeper uh, issues that we are struggling with as a society. Uh, so I, I think this is a great uh, time for us to be talking about some of these uh, matters as they relate to Buffalo. De Deanna, you grew up around there, so maybe uh, I'll start. Uh, I'll start with you. Uh, help us set the stage uh, a little bit uh, uh, about Buffalo. What stands out? What, what do people need to know when we think about uh, that city? For sure, Buffalo is the queen city of New York State. Um, when I was young, it was the 40th largest city in the US. I don't think that's the case anymore, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Um, it's on uh, the border of Canada. So we spent a lot of time crossing over the border via the Peace Bridge to go visit places in Canada. So it has a key um, location there in terms of shipping and international relations. Buffalo is a, a pretty mixed city demographically, 47% white, 35% Black or African-American, 12% Latino or Hispanic, 6% Asian, 0.5% American Indian and Alaska Native community, 
which seems like a pretty small number, but um, Buffalo actually has a number of, of American Indian reservations close to the urban area. And of course, all cities have a, a portion of um, urban native folks as well. So there's actually a pretty thriving native community in the Buffalo area and the Western New York area as well. As well. In fact, we, we heard from someone who represents a local native um, community engagement organization when we were there. About 10% of Buffalo folks are foreign born. Um, and a lot of that, those roots are Germanic or Polish. I myself, my family is Germanic in root, has, has Germanic roots. Um, there's also significant Irish and Italian pop population there. Okay, and uh, so so we've got a sense uh, Buffalo is a pretty diverse place, uh, actually. And uh, Mohammed, uh, tell us a little bit about the uh, the economy and uh, and those dynamics. So, in terms of economics, Buffalo is a city that was on the decline since the sixties, seventies, due to the closure of companies, uh, plants, etc. And when it comes to the per capita income, and in comparison to the average U.S capital income, we can say that Buffalo is far behind. We have an average income of, let's say, thirty-nine dollars to $40,000. And the median household in the US is about $67,000. And the same also applies to the per capita income. And we have been experiencing Buffalo as a city which has experienced an annual increase but it's still far lower than the U.S. average. Okay, so uh, so we're we're talking about a place that has passed its heyday, um, and uh, I think this is a connection also with with Dortmund, where where you all spent the first leg uh, of your of your research trip, and so this gives us a little bit of context uh, to to talk about um, Buffalo, and let's stick with the the in industrial transformation uh, because. Uh, Buffalo was an industrial city, and of course, the proximity to Canada, as Deanna mentioned, is is important. Um, how how is the transformation progressing now? What did you uh, experience? What uh, takeaways do you bring back from from your time there, Mohammed? So um, we we have seen a rapid decline since economies shifted and people moved somewhere else for jobs. But um, recently we've been seeing that Buffalo has undergone some changes from an industrial city to a more service oriented city to a knowledge hub, technical hub, and also luring new businesses and people with different assets to join and to move to Buffalo. So um, as per the federal census 2020, the, the city has experienced a growth of let's say 6% in its population. And the reason for this is investments from deindustrialization to new housing complexes, restaurants, green spaces, and also factories were placed by major employers. One example is, for example, um, Tesla, Tesla south of the Buffalo River, which has redeveloped this facility in order to um, attract more and more people to join. And as I said again, it's luring new and creative businesses for people. Um, to, to see what uh, the city is promising for the future. You know, uh, one of the things that we uh, uh, were in touch about earlier, which really stuck with me, and, and that is Buffalo's uh, history, uh, not, and not only 
as an industrial center, but also in the agricultural sector. Uh, and, and I think I think it was your observation, Deanna, uh, that you can you can still smell the Cheerios um, uh, from uh, from a plant that used to used to exist there. You can, and it's really remarkable as you drive in on what we call the Skyway. You you just sort of have this smell of cereal and. Um, as you're proceeding in, and that smell is still there. That was one of the most remarkable um, kind of revelations that I had when I when I went back as part of this trip. It was really amazing. Um, so, 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 so you have lies. you have not just a not just a physical landscape that's marked by the industrial era, but also an olfactory landscape. <laughs> you do, and it pervades. And there's still an Archer Daniels Midland, you know, plant that exists today and is still cranking out cereal. So, and part of our trip is uh, was we were able to tour an area called Silo City, where all the old, we, Buffalo had dozens and dozens of old, huge grain silos, more than any other um, industrial city at its time in, in sort of the grain milling heyday. And we toured those silos where sort of um, art, art installations had popped up in the, end, and, uh, the empty silos. It was super fascinating. They have little concerts there and they're also restoring that area into apartments um, that are gonna be, you can imagine it's right on the water, right on the river. Those will be, I'm sure, higher end apartments as they're located fairly distant from where the lower community, income communities in, in Buffalo are. So that was a really interesting part of our trip. You know, some, it's sort of that um, clash between right, revitalization and, and gentrification. Right. And an interesting thing was standing on site at those that grain silo and looking across the river where the Irish and Italian communities um, kind of housed the workers that would come across the river to work in the mills and then come back. Mm -hmm. And and so, uh, Mohammed, you were talking also about the uh, the, the Tesla um, uh, uh, battery. Um, uh, is it a battery facility? Uh, did I get that? Did I get it, that right? It was a gigafactory. Okay, um, so is and are we talking about you know a a turnaround, let's say, in the Buffalo economy um, when we uh, hear, uh, for example, about a six percent uh, growth in population for the first time in decades? Um, did you bring away a sense of a city that, in some ways, has turned a corner? So talking about this economic transformation aspect, uh, one point to add, and it's very important to raise this, the gigafactory of Tesla is an exception because Buffalo is undergoing and seeing changes, particularly in downtown area. So other places such as the North or the East have been left behind somehow. Uh, the city is on an upswing. Nevertheless, some areas have been experiencing worsening conditions, little to no changes or improvements. Um, we've been visiting East Side as well, east of the main street, uh, where also the shooting unfortunately took place. And um, we, we can just say that specific areas where the point or the focus of attention, while in the East there was low attention to the community, we have seen supermarkets like the top supermarket is the only food desert. And I think this says it all. Yeah. Okay. So, so this this brings us uh, to the next major uh, question that to to look at, and that is, um, if we're talking about the sources of social divisions, and that is that is segregation. I was struck uh, in some of the uh, research you had done. Uh, Buffalo is the eighth most segregated city in the United States. Is that right, Deanna? It is, and, and there's a fascinating report that was issued by the Partnership for Public Good in Buffalo that um, sort of goes into details how 
as to how that came about. And we've, you know, we've already alluded to a few things where there's you know, sort of worker communities. And, and basically what we see is 85% of the, the 30 some percent of black or African-American folks in the city are, live on the east side, basically where the tops market is. And if you, I mean, that sadly that example offers offers a great sort of lens into this dynamic in Buffalo, whereby somebody from Binghamton, New York, clearing the other side of the state, drew, drove four hours, not once, but twice, to find the most concentrated community of people of color outside of New York City in the state. Mm-hmm. And he found that community in East Buffalo. So that gives you an idea. There's also uh, a spatial segregation there whereby Route 33 sort of runs between East Buffalo and the rest of the city. There's long histories of redlining in those spaces. Um, and they're also strong communities with a huge sense of pride in the community and people tend not to leave. Right, right. So, and, and of course this this um, is not only a, a question of, of racial uh, segregation, um, it, this also, there's a broader uh, problem of, of poverty um, in Buffalo. If you, for example, pick numbers talking about racial segregation and economic segregation, and we stick to the zip code where the top supermarket is located. For example, in this area, the average household income is 45K, while two miles away in the west of Main Street, where 60% of the residents are white, we have an average household income of 88K US dollars. So there's, there's, a, huge, there's a huge gap showing us that race and location can determine what your um, socioeconomic status can be. And one underlying factor for this is also environmental racism. People of specific ethnic um, groups and communities were placed in certain areas where you have um, transport linkages and dumping sites. So people are kind of exposed to environmental dangers based on their ethnic roots. Mm-hmm. And so, what do you what do you see uh, on the ground in, in terms of the efforts of local communities to uh, to address and overcome um, this uh, this legacy? Well, we met with an organization called Journeys End. That's a refugee resettlement organization, and just kind of going through their headquarters was super fascinating because you saw the different languages that they were serving: Somali, all the sort of many. Um, Uh, Middle Eastern languages, for example, African languages, all being sort of served within that space, kind of suggesting obviously that people are coming from all over the world to relocate at Buffalo. So they were doing incredible work, talked a lot about the the language aspect, but also the legal aspects and helping people navigate um, trying to become a citizen in the US or even trying to get their stipends when they first arrive. It's very complicated in the US and they were doing incredible work. We also saw a place called the West Side Bazaar Um, where I look at it as sort of a place where Buffalo is celebrating those immigrant histories and their cultures, whereby um, you have um, vendors selling dresses and um, jewelry. We all sort of went and and bought from them. And there are also, um, there was a variety of local foods, everything from Ethiopian to Thai to Burmese. There's a huge Burmese population there. So that was really, and it's people flock there for lunch. And it was great to see that location where those cultures cultures are, are celebrated mm-hmm. and then and and initiatives uh, in particular um in east buffalo um uh, what what did you what did you learn um about uh, about that so uh, we've been visiting open buffalo 
an initiative that is supporting artists and people who are trying to be self-sufficient and try to make the fortune in cultural, musical or artistic things. Um, Open Buffalo was also an interesting initiative which supports these kind of people who try to achieve their goals by funding them, by giving consultation sessions, etc. And as Diana has also, um, as she has also touched upon Wheaties Westside Bazaar, this place not only sells food in order to unite people and facilitating peaceful coexistence, but it also gives people the opportunity to try out business ideas and learning the fundamentals of retailing. These two initiatives were, were places and locations that have stuck into our mind. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to ask you to take a step back and and uh, offer thoughts on the parallels or perhaps the divergences between what you've experienced in Dortmund, another um, in a way post-industrial uh, landscape, uh, and Buffalo. Uh, where do you see similarities, but also where do you see um, uh, differences, and what are the roots of those? Well, I'll mention a few points and then we'll love to hear your thoughts as well, um, Mohammed. Um, Buffalo is a lot smaller than Dortmund, which I have to say was a little surprising. I'm clearly a little bit, um, uh, you know, US or Buffalo centric, um, but at two, 257 or whatever, Buff- Dortmund is more like a 600K population. But the spatial segregation that I mentioned that kind of cordons off East Buffalo also happens in Dortmund, whereby there's a bridge um, and a highway separating the largely immigrant community with with the rest of the city. Um, The concentrations of immigrant communities were, you know, seem like there were similarities there, but of course in the U.S., we have uh, much larger Black and African American Hispanic populations. We're also going through a racial reckoning here in the U.S., um, and which is both, we're turning a corner in terms of our awakening and we're also having experiencing an incredible amount of pushback and violence as a result. Um, we saw universities in both places. Um, and that, what, those, what are those your forces, thoughts, that, if, I can, if I can draw you out just for a second, Deanna, on yeah. the, the, what are the, uh, the sources of, uh, of ideas and initiatives that you experienced in both places to overcome? To what extent are they driven uh, in a grassroots sense um, arising out of uh, local communities and the educational system uh, versus uh, through, through state or governmental uh, action? Do you, do you see a contrast or similarities there? Oh, thanks for asking that. So, so the West End Bazaar that both of us mentioned is is sort of a great example in Buffalo. Yeah, it's sort of it's not the equivalent, but a similar example in um, Dortmund was was Tati's Cafe, located in the largely immigrant region. Who and this is a young entrepreneur who said, "Look, I want to set up a gathering place for people where all people are welcome across, you know, regardless of their um, immigrant history or not, background, etc." a place of safety and comfort with amazing food that we got to experience. So these were um, both very heartwarming examples on the local level of of sort of grassroots driven um, efforts to kind of bridge the divide and celebrate culture. Open Buffalo that um, Mohammed mentioned also is um, doing leadership development whereby uh, training basically local youth to be the next generation of leaders in addressing specifically really um, systemic racism in the area. Mm-hmm. Mohammed? 
Um, absolutely agree to what Dana has said. Both places are characterized by ethnic diversity. They try to see diversity and variety as one of its strengths, uh, aiming to create a multicultural sense. Nevertheless, both cities are grappling with and struggling with um, segregation based on ethnic differences. Um, as she has mentioned, Diana Tati's Cafe is one example, and we can, we can draw the parallel to the Wheaties Westside Bazaar, which also is a place of food, uniting people from different walks of life. And there was a second parallel she has touched upon on Journey's End, an initiative organization aiming to help new arrivals, refugees, and the same applies to Lokal Willkommen. It was an initiative in Dortmund, which tries to facilitate mutual coexistence by welcoming new arrivals, uh, encouraging dialogue and encounters, and also helping them in finding classes for language courses, uh, jobs, and free time activities through sports and culture. So we can see many different parallels, different uh, same approaches. Uh, these approaches mainly, from my perspective, correct me if I'm wrong, Diana, and Liz, they were more bottom up than top down. So you could see a grassroots movement really growing, uh, of course, funded by the state, but the initiatives coming from below instead from from the top. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For sure. Liz Hoteri, um, I'm gonna to turn to you because you have the, uh, the good fortune to be involved in uh, multiple years of this project. So um, not, not just uh, Dortmund uh, and Buffalo, but Chemnitz, uh, for example, uh, and uh, Akron, if I'm not uh, mistaken. So, um, so how are you seeing uh, parallels and divergences emerge um, as you look across the years of this, of, of this project? Right. I mean, it is interesting that um, all four cities that we visited, um, Akron and Chemnitz and Buffalo and Dortmund, kind of saw this um, deindustrialization around the same time, um, maybe for different reasons. Um, and especially in Buffalo and Dortmund, but also a little bit in Akron and Chemnitz, there is a tension between kind of the the local government and developers and maybe what what the actual needs of the communities are you know we saw that in silo city in in buffalo that we mentioned earlier um they're you know converting this old grain silo into an art space and apartments but um you know who's going to live there um who who is that space for and that is similar in the phoenix say in dortmund um you know they rebuilt this old industrial site um, into this, you know, restaurants, bars, and um, luxury homes and condos. So, um, you know, who who is this new investment for? Um, and we also talked with um, the Cornell uh, Lab in Buffalo that does a lot with city planning, and you know, they talked a lot about high road versus low road development. And in some of these cities, we see the people at the top, the, the mayors, you know, they want to bring in new people. They want to bring, attract talent to their communities. Um, but what they really need is to develop the talent that already exists and to make sure that they're bringing in an economy that works for the people who are already there. Um, so that I think is something that um, these, these four cities all are grappling with, you know, trying to be innovative, but also making sure that that innovation is inclusive. Mm -hmm. So, Liz, what can we look forward to um, in terms of outputs and future activities? 
Well, in addition to this podcast, we will also have a written piece from two other participants, Julia Sattler and Astrid Schmidt-King, and that will be published uh, this month in July 2022. And um, the whole group is working together on kind of a multimedia project that will reflect on both cities. Um, It's a story map, and that will be published on our website later this fall. Okay. And give us a a little hint of what's to come in year three of this project. Yes, we have already started working on our agenda in uh, Glendale, Arizona. We'll be visiting there in September. And that sister city is Memmingen, Bavaria. So we are looking forward to seeing, you know, how how these two cities, um, not very, you know, post-industrial, it's kind of a different different framing for these two, but we're really excited to uh, be in those two cities in fall 2022 and in spring 2023. Okay. And so let me um, turn back as we close um, uh, to Mohammed and Diana uh, again, uh, because it strikes me that we are in a moment uh, when you think about international politics, when you think about the Russian war in Ukraine that has driven what we would consider to be the West uh, or the transatlantic community uh, closer together. Um, and, And so we've got a tradition that goes back decades of German-American cooperation and transatlantic partnership. But uh, I think one of the more fundamental things we're doing in this project is looking at what that means um, for our societies as they are in transition and uh, beyond the high politics uh, of of the day. uh, What does the transatlantic partnership mean uh, now for uh, people who are growing up and who are going to be leading um, this, this, uh, these countries of ours for the next 30, 40 years. Uh, so I'd, I'd be curious to hear your reflections uh, on, on that. What stands out to you when you think about German-American partnership, Mohammed? So as a person who has spent also a semester abroad in the U.S. and calling myself a Fulbrighter, I would understand transatlantic as something related to mutual understanding and friendship. A close cooperation and collaboration, um, specifically um, against the backdrop of what is going on in international politics and on global stage. Um, we can learn from each other. Both sides uh, bring different assets, but they can complement instead of uh, replace each other. And I'm very blessed and uh, truly blessed uh, to call the participants of CGS my friends. So it is also meaning friendship at a very personal level and bringing in and introducing different perspectives can help tackle challenges that we are experiencing in our respective societies, but also challenges that we could tackle together at a global stage. Deanna? I totally agree. I mean, you know, we all are, we were, everybody's comments at, at sort of as we left Buffalo, we don't say the end of the program because we hope that we will all kind of continue to keep in touch and we have to uh, work together for another couple months as well. But everybody was just so grateful for the connection. And the program offered this opportunity to sort of exercise that worldview of of collaboration and and cross-cultural learning with folks that were at very different stages of the life cycle, you know, really from very different backgrounds, et cetera. It was just such a valuable opportunity. I mean, I I, I don't know. I was doing some work in the... um, kind of with with some of the disinformation work I'm, I'm working on with uh, tracking the German election, but I dug into learning about more about the Bundestag uh, as part of this program. And I don't know if I would have done that necessarily 
otherwise. So uh, I do agree totally with Mohammed that um, each of our histories, German and American, can help inform the future for each of our countries. Well, um, we'll we're, then I guess we're in good hands. Uh, Mohammed Kanjar, uh, Deanna Trost, I want to thank you for your engagement in this uh, project, for our discussion uh, today, and, uh, and for uh, most of all, um, what this uh, project is doing to build uh, German-American uh, understanding that's uh, fit for the future. So thanks so much uh, to both of you. Um, oh, thanks pleasure. to Liz for uh, everything you're doing to, uh, to put this uh, program on, on a track that is uh, successful and uh, opening up new doors for all of us. Um, and uh, I want to thank especially all of our listeners on this episode of The Zeitgeist, and we look forward to having you with us again soon. Thanks so much, Deanna, Mohammed, and Liz. Thank you, Jen. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org, or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.